I certainly have a feeling that spring has sprung on the way to church this morning. It was feeling quite, uh, well, it's feeling quite warm and bright outside, so that's, that's a welcome change. We're going to be in Isaiah 42, starting in verse 5 today, talking about not the Lord's will, but the Lord will. So, in Christian circles, we can approach the Lord's will, or God's will, as some mysterious thing, unknown, unknowable, and we wonder about God's will concerning the future, but it's really nothing we should obsess over because we can be so curious about discovering God's plans or his will that we we see seeking him, and we stop obeying the things that he's told us to do because God has, we can almost be so, I don't know about you, I can be so preoccupied with future that I'm not thinking about how I can be in God's will now. Have you ever been there? So God's revealed his will in the Bible as far as what pleases him, and though we don't know the future exactly, we can walk securely and in comfort knowing that what God said he will do. As certain as he has done things in the past, he will do them in the future according to his promise. And Jesus prayed in Luke 11 too, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. It is done on earth. And ultimately, he'll put all things right. So God has redemptive plans for everything that occurs, even if it's in line with his will, because a lot in this world happens that's not God's will, right? He's, he's not willing any should perish. His will was not that death would come into the world, but because of sin, Death came, and God, through the death of his son, made a way for us to have life. That's his will, for us to have life. So he's that source of peace and contentment for us. And let's thank him, our Heavenly Father, for his goodness to us. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for opening our eyes to see your goodness, and that every victory is yours. All that is good, it's a gift from you. And we rejoice in you. We rejoice in what you've given. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive your word today. That it wouldn't be just old news, but it would be like that good seed that falls on prepared soil, making fruit and bringing glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's very easy for us to be swept off our feet by circumstances. Think of the the disciples as they're in the ship, and it's filling up with water, and Jesus is sleeping, and they're thinking, Jesus, don't you care about us? Don't you, aren't you as worried about our impending death as we are? Because he wasn't panicking. They saw that as he doesn't care if we live or die. But Jesus says, you know, why are you doubting? He just spoke to the wind and the wave, and there was a calm. There was peace. So today, we have this good reminder of what God has said he will do. We can be very preoccupied with timing because we live in a in the constraints of time. But consider what God said to his people in a time when they were facing turmoil and strife and warfare and parts of the nation were on fire. He says this in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So God's going to do this thing. He's going to bring justice. You see oppression? He's going to bring righteousness. And we ask, well, when? When are you going to do this? When is Jesus... Uh, when is God going to establish his kingdom? When will there be peace, an increase of peace with no end? When is never the thing we're to focus on. Our eyes are to be fixed on Christ. He is our peace. Regardless of timing, we can rejoice knowing the Lord will. The Lord will do these things. We can trust him. Isn't he trustworthy? We serve a trustworthy God. So in Isaiah 42, verse 5, we pick up from where we read last week. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, 
who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. The identity of the one speaking affects the way we listen. The source of information is important. If you see that a study's been done, you probably want to know who funded that study because there could be a conflict of interest. Credentials give weight to claims. You'll see some people on a post, they'll say, well, as a doctor, I say this, or as a solicitor with 35 years of experience in law, and then you go, oh, okay, There's, I can listen to what you're saying, or your words carry weight because of your experience or training or education. Well, God, he cites his credentials. I, the Lord, the self-existent one, the eternal one, I've created everything. Created the heavens and stretched them out like a curtain. It was that easy for me to just, here they are. He formed all living things. Is such a one worthy of an audience with you? And I think, well, are we worthy to have such a message from him? No. But he speaks to us. He is gracious. And in these four verses, in the first four, he talked about his elect, my servant. He talked about uh, the Messiah who would be sent, the anointed one of God. And now he addresses his servant, Jesus Christ, who would be born. And he says, I'm going to hold your hand. Think of the consolation this was for Jesus, the one who had been given, the one who was anointed. He's saying, I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to lead and guide and uphold you continually. I'm going to protect you, keep you. I'm giving you as a covenant to the people and a light to the Gentiles. You're going to open blind eyes, bring prisoners out of prison from darkness into light. Now, if you could turn in your Bibles to Luke 2.25, we see that this scripture that we read just now is quoted by a man named Simeon in the temple. Eight days after Jesus was born, he was brought by Joseph and Mary into the temple in Jerusalem to be presented, circumcised, and to offer the sacrifice prescribed by the law. So the law of Moses said you were to give a lamb or a uh, and if you weren't able to afford that, you could give two turtle doves or pigeons. And they brought pigeons. So that tells us what their financial standing was at that time. Luke 2, 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So cool, here's Simeon, a man filled with the Holy Spirit. God leads him to go into the temple precisely at this time where Jesus is coming in. He takes the baby in his arms and said, Lord, now I can leave in peace. And there's something in my heart that longs to be able to say that. Like, okay, I've seen the thing that you said I was going to see. You have done what you have promised in my life, and I'm ready to be with you now. And it's a departure in peace. That's the peace that we have in Christ, isn't it? He was the one that Isaiah spoke of, the one that would bring light to the Gentiles, salvation to the world, the glory of Israel. Now, if you could turn to John 17, 18, we know Jesus was sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And a day before he would die for the sins of the world, he said something to his disciples that's very significant. As God spoke, God the Father spoke to the Son that he would hold his hand and be with him, and he did, of course, 
Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in John 17, 18. Speaking to his father, oh, excuse me, to his disciples, he says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So this is during his prayer. I'll read that one more time. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. It's so significant that in the same way the Father sent the Son, Jesus, in praying to the Father, he says, I'm sending my disciples. So just like God the Father held the Son's hand, Jesus holds our hand. He's the one who's called us in righteousness. He's the one who will protect us and keep us. He's the one who has made us a light of the world so that other people can be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants to use you to bring his light, the light of the gospel, the light of life to others. Before Jesus came, God said, I will perform this. I will do this. He did it for Jesus, and Jesus says to us, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I am doing for you. You may feel inadequate to be used as a light of this world, and rightly so. There's no no brightness in us that should shine. But God will see this done because his Holy Spirit has filled us and anointed us as Christians. We may not realize how this happens or say, when, Lord, when? He will do it. God will. Back to Isaiah 42, verse 8. Of course, there is that cooperation that we need to have with him, as we'll see, where Jesus laid down his will in Gethsemane. We, too, need to lay our will down. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Again, he says, I am the Lord, the self-existent one. I have done, and I will do. By his wisdom, he founded the world, he created all things, and he speaks with certainty of the future. He's not going to give his glory to idols. And that line that he says, as surely as things have happened, I will do them. I can't say that. I can't make that claim. Like I could, let's say, play baseball and have a good hit and say, as I have done, I will do again. And then my knee could break in half. And then it's all over, right? My word doesn't count for much. But God, when he says, I'm the one who's made everything. I'm the one who knows everything. I know the past. The future also is in my hands. It's not an uncertain thing to me. It's uncertain to us, but not to him. He says, I have done it. I will do it. And we can cling to that. We can hold on to it. God's promising his unrepentant people, they would go into captivity, but he would bring them out. He would raise up Cyrus, his anointed one, who would deliver them, bring them out of The Babylonian captivity, 70 years later, send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Jesus said before he was betrayed, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. The fulfillment of prophecy is unique to Scripture, where you have a 100% perfect track record of what God has said has come to pass. There's parts of Isaiah that are so specific, that people have wondered if it was somehow written hundreds of years later after the fact, because it's so precise. Yet God knew Cyrus before he was born. He called him before he was born. He knew how things were going to pan out, and God did it. So when Jesus says, I'm I'm telling you, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, so that when it comes to pass, you'll know that I am the Christ you'll know that I told you. This didn't surprise me. God forbid that we would become ho-hum about God doing exactly what he said he would do because it's one of the best evidences of Christ's divinity that the Bible is the word of God, that it is factual and true, trustworthy, concerning now and the future. Verse 10, Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, that the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. 
Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. God is a glorious God. I don't, I I assume that not everyone here thinks they have the most beautiful singing voice. Something we can be a bit self-conscious about to the point where we sing very quietly because we don't really want everyone to hear. Or when we have sung loud, we heard about it later and that's embarrassing. But you know, God delights to hear you sing to him. He wants to hear you sing. And isn't it amazing? We ask the Lord, Lord, I want to take a step of faith. You know, singing can be a step of faith. Not that you can suddenly sing amazingly in your uh, opinion now, but that it's acceptable and pleasing to God despite your criticism of yourself or of others. God rejoices. He delights to hear your voice. From the coast, from the sea, to the mountains, the valleys, everyone, sing a new song to the Lord. A new song. We sung a new song today, which is pretty cool. And I'll be honest with you. I'm not always keen to learn a new song. Sometimes when there's two or three new songs in a row, and I'm talking about in church, all right? I'm just being very straightforward. If there's a lot of new songs, I feel like I can't really enter in because I don't really know what to be singing. I'm still learning the tune. I'm learning the words. And then it gets familiar. And then I can, I feel like I can truly enter in. I'm not distracted by my own mistakes. I'm able to focus on the Lord and think about what I'm singing a bit better. I like familiar things. But God's saying, I want you to sing a new song to me. You may not be comfortable singing this song, but it's a new song. I'm the God who makes all things new. I've given you a new heart, a renewed mind. I want your praise of me to expand. It's fine to be singing the same songs, but God wants our joy and praise of him to grow. There's more things we can praise God for now than we could 10 years ago or or two months ago because God is doing awesome things today that we can be praising him for. So he's saying, sing to me a new song. Talk about some of the things that I'm doing. Praise me in a new way. God's the one who gives us a new song. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 40, 1 through 3. It's a psalm of David. And consider the place is where David gets this new song. You would think it would always be on the mountaintop, right? This glorious experience where We come face to face with the living God and we're like overwhelmed. And with the angels, we take up the chorus. But he's actually, this new song came from the miry pit. That's where he was when this song came. Psalm 41 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. You don't need to be able to carry a tune to sing God's praises. God created the birds to sing. The nature of God's redeemed is to praise to glorify him, to speak often of the things that he has done. And when we speak of God, when we do sing his praises, what does it say? He says, many will see it, fear God, and trust in the Lord. This is the effect of praise to God. Not necessarily song, but that we would bring God into a conversation and sing his praises and talk about the great things he's done, that I was in the miry pit I was in this dark place and God took me out of that and he established my feet on solid ground. And oh, the joy that comes from that. Having experience, he he experienced the pit and then he was able to sing the praise. You want to lead people to Jesus? Well, sing his praises. Not just in this room, but wherever we go. Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. 
I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands and I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. If you can remember back to last week, in verse 2 it said that he would not let his voice be heard in the streets. The Messiah would be silent. We know as he went to the cross, like a sheep, a sheep before his shearers, he opened not his mouth. He wasn't looking for fanfare or for accolades. He, when, when he went, and we read it this week in the discipleship course, that he went to Gadara and he cast out the, the legion out of the man, and the people asked him to leave. And without a word, he got back in the boat and he left. So he was a humble, submissive servant. He came in that way. But now, this description is quite different. So the way that Christ will return, he will be that conquering king, that, that's, that warrior who gets all fired up with adrenaline before he goes into battle. He spoke the truth with grace and love. He suffered on the cross and died. But when he comes back, he will come back as a conquering king, a judge, a ruler. And he will wage war on all those, all his enemies, all those who oppose him and have rejected him. Now, for thousands of years, God has patiently waited, hasn't he? He says, I've held my peace a long time. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's patient. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants to give people opportunity to come to Christ and to follow him. And he's going to go forth like a mighty man. No one knows the day or the hour, but one day the labor pains of the great tribulation will begin. And labor pains for a pregnant woman mean that that pregnancy is coming to an end. Like, okay, things have been set in motion. That, if all goes well, there will be a baby at the end of this. And the great tribulation is like the beginning of the end of Satan's rule on earth because Jesus will come back. Having taken the church before the wrath of God is poured out, Christ will bring his saints from the four winds and they will return with him in power and God will do this. He's going to destroy the mountains, dry up grass and vegetation, the supplies of water. We read that in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that period, he, Jesus will establish his millennial, his 1,000-year reign. Now, the Bible speaks of many people coming to Christ during the Great Tribulation. In addition to the 144,000 Jews, the males, who will be sealed, there are many Jews and Gentiles who will trust in Christ. They will survive and see the second coming of Christ, and he will, Jesus, distinguish enemy or foe from friend. He's not just arbitrary. There's no collateral damage when it comes to Jesus. He says, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. You see all the things that God's promised to his people? We fit into this. We were the ones who were blind, and he's made the way clear to us. And there's times where we can be blind to something even in our own lives, and God will open our eyes to see it. But he says, I will, I will, I will. He's going to, he will. We can trust him for that. You can be confused about your current circumstances, but God's not going to forsake you. He's not going to forget you. We're unable to know or what to do in situations, but the Lord will. He'll do it. And throughout all history, God has directed men who could not see. He's given them light to know the right path. The Jews to this day are largely blind. They're unable to see Christ as the Messiah, but a day is coming when the veil will be pulled away and they will see Christ in truth, that he is the promised Messiah that God has sent. 
When I was reading through this, I was reminded of Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. I don't know if you've read that book. But it's the point where Christian, he's traversing the valley of the shadow of death. And in the darkness, it was difficult for him to see even where to put the next step. He, he wasn't really sure because it was filled with danger, this area. And Bunyan wrote how he was deeply affected by the journey. He says, thus he went on, I heard him sigh bitterly. For besides the dangers mentioned above, the pathway was here so dark that oft times when he lift up his foot to set forward, he knew not where or upon what he should set it next. So every step for Christian was he's sighing over every step. He's like, ah, I'm not really sure what to do. I'm not sure where I should go. Have you ever felt like that? Where you just didn't know what you should do next? Ultimately, he was brought safely through, like what David said in Psalm 23, that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And I just want to read a little portion. When Christian had gone through a large portion of the valley of the shadow of death, and he looks back, and that's the part that really struck me, is we all have that testimony where we can look back on our lives and say, I didn't know it at the time, but you were guiding me. And I can trust you in going forward, and you're shedding more light on how I should order my steps. So quoting from the book, it says, Now was Christian much affected with his deliverance from all the dangers of his solitary way, which dangers, though he feared them more before, yet he saw them more clearly now, because the light of the day made them conspicuous to him. About this time the sun was rising, There was another mercy to Christian. For you must note that, though the first part of the valley was of the shadow of death and it was dangerous, yet the second part, though which he was yet to go, was, if possible, far more dangerous. For from the place where he now stood, even to the end of the valley, the way was all along so full of snares, traps, gins, and nets here, and so full of pits, pitfalls, deep holes, and ledges down there, that had it now been dark, as it was when he came the first part of the way, had he a thousand souls, they had in reason been cast away. But, as I said just now, the sun was rising. Then he said, his candle shines on my head, and by his light I go through darkness. So may there be a sun rising upon each of our hearts today through Christ, that we can look back and say, Lord, you have brought me through that dark place, and though my future may be formidable, I know that you're with me and you'll give me light so I don't step down the ledge on the left or into the mire on my right, that you have made a sure path for my feet. Your way may seem solitary. That's what Christian thought. But God will not forsake you. He'll make darkness light before you. He will do it. Isaiah 42, 18. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things, but you do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear? The Messiah, we know, is God's servant, the one who makes eyes to see. And it's a weird thing that he says here. He's like, hey, blind person, look. And deaf person, listen, he's telling them to do something they can't do. It's kind of not a a very, I guess, maybe polite thing to do if I was to to use this with the next impaired person who had difficulty seeing and say, hey, check this out. Oh, wait, (laughs) you can't see. Um, But God's, he's, he's, there's a progression here. He's not mocking anyone. The fact is, a blind servant, a deaf messenger, wouldn't be very useful to their master, right? If you had a deaf servant and you wanted him to deliver a message, speaking it to him when he's not looking at you, it wouldn't be effective. But God's people, the nation of the Jews, they are his servants. He called them. They said, you're our God. We will be your people. We will serve you. We will do your statutes. They were the people that God chose as his own inheritance. They were given the privilege of God's presence, his laws, his favor. They saw themselves as the informed ones. Like, we know the truth. 
we have truth, we have the true God. Now, it's true that they were given the law of Moses, but they remained spiritually blind because they did not trust. They did not place their faith in Christ. And the Jews in Isaiah's day, they couldn't understand why God was allowing them to suffer at the hand of these Gentiles. Like, we have the temple. We have the law. We're offering these sacrifices. We're doing all the right things, and yet our lives are horrible, and Jerusalem is threatened. How can this be? Well, God told them through the prophets that they needed to repent and put away their idolatry. They couldn't see their hypocrisy, that they were fasting for themselves and not for God. And a blind person must admit their blindness and ask to be sought, hey, seek to lead someone by the hand so they can see, so they can walk along the path. The deaf, they have to comprehend the fact they can't hear. They must admit this fact before you could desire change or say, hey, write that down. I can't really hear you, right? The priests and the prophets alike, they were blind guides, even in Christ's day when the Pharisees were there. Jesus had healed a man who was born blind. This man, who now could see, was being interrogated by the religious leaders, and they said, well, how did he do it? He's like, I already told you. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. And from the foundation of the world, it's never been known that someone who was blind can now see. Yet it's happened to me. Well, well, how did he do it? Uh, so he, oh, well, you guys, uh, why don't you, yeah, so they had this interaction and, and he took a tone with them they didn't appreciate. So they threw him out, threw him out of the synagogue. Now, John 9, 35, check this out. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he, and when he had found him, isn't that lovely? Jesus goes to the outcast. He knew where he was. He heard about it. He went to him. He said, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. So these religious leaders, they were the informed ones. They were the wise ones. And yet, there's Jesus standing before them, and they're not believing in him. They're not trusting in him. So with all their insights and all their knowledge of the law, they were blind, spiritually. This man, who was now made to see, said, who is he, Lord, so I can believe on him? He says, it's me, the one who's talking with you. He says, Lord, I believe. See, a blind man who could see physically and spiritually. It's faith in Christ that enables us to see. We can have seasons of blindness in our own lives. We can see with our own eyes, but how many times have we been blind to one of our faults? Or to something that's a habit of ours. We didn't really realize we did. I guess uh, not involving sin or anything. But whenever I grow like a beard, I tend to touch it all the time. And I only know that because when I cut it off, I go like this and go, oh, that's not really good. I don't know why I do that. So it's something that I started to do, but I didn't know I did it until there was that change where clean shaven and now I'm touching my chin. It just doesn't do it for me. Okay. But I, I was blind to my own habits, right? We can be blind to our own unbelief. We can be blind to a great deal of things that we need God to show us what's, what is the matter? How can I do what's right? Uh, what do you want me to do next? All these questions we face every day. And we don't, we have to come to a place of saying, Lord, I'm blind and I need you to show me. I need you to lead me by the hand. I know you're with me. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem that way. But I know that you will bring me through. I want to go your way, not my way. Isaiah 42, 21. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and plundered. 
All of them are snared in holes, and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey, and no one delivers, for plunder, and no one says, restore. God had allowed some really trying, difficult times for his people. And when we question what God has done or allowed in unbelief, saying like, where's God in this? It's an affront to his righteousness as if we know better than God. And this is our natural state. This is what we will tend to do. God would see righteousness upheld. He was disciplining his children like a father chastens a son that he loves. Now the Jews, having received the law of God, in keeping it, they pointed to that as showing their righteousness. They said, because I do these things, I am righteous. But the law could never make you righteous. It only could show your faults. So they used something, they distorted it, something God gave his people to show them how, how, great, how greatly they needed him and the depth of their sin. They distorted it and said, I'm righteous because I do this. And God's saying, that's not the way the law is to be applied. So I'm going to use enemies to teach you a lesson. And I'm going to allow you to be plundered. And I'm going to allow you to be killed. And I'm going to allow you to be taken captive. The people made the scribes and the priests who interpreted the law honorable when God wanted the law honored. They weren't honoring the law because they thought they were righteous because of the law. They used the law actually to justify their own sin. Now God, he's going to honor the law and see justice done. He allowed his people to be robbed of their wealth, even as he had been robbed of glory. He would see them plundered, even as they oppressed and plundered the poor. Those who preyed upon widows and orphans, they would find themselves prey without any salvation. He's saying, I'm going to return. You guys have been sowing a lot of things, and it's coming back on you now. You're going to reap what you have sown. Now, do you think God enjoyed or had some sort of secret uh, pleasure in the, the pain or the destruction of his people? Absolutely not, because it's written several times in Ezekiel, and here's one in Ezekiel 18, 31, and 32. He says, Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. So sickness, death, oppression, violence, these are a result of sin. And he's saying, guys, I'm the one who can give you life. Put your sin away, repent, and turn to me and live. It gives me no pleasure to see people die. I want to see people live. That's why God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. He is the one who gives new hearts and new minds, new life. Verse 23 of Isaiah 42. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, it has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know. It burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. The prophet wondered who would listen to the word of the Lord. And he even talks about us. He says, for the time to come. Who's going to take note? And I was really convicted yesterday because I was going through one of the train stations and thinking, you know, sometimes I don't bring God into a conversation because I think people don't, they're not going to respond. And because they're not going to respond, why bother? But think about if one of the prophets of God had taken that tack. Oh, well, they're not going to listen anyway, so I'm not going to speak to them. No. It has nothing to do with how it's going to be received. We need to be obedient to speak the things that God has said. And God did this through the prophet. He says, well, who's going to listen? Are these people going to listen? Are people in the future going to listen? Are they going to obey it or think about it? The Bible says that everything included in God's word has been included for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. You may think that oppression and warfare and death, there's not much hope in that. But remember, God is the one who is a Messiah, a Savior, who gives us life. That's Romans 15, 4. 
Now, on my baseball team, when someone makes a, a mistake, the ball goes through their legs, they strike out, they drop an easy catch. Um, someone will usually say, ah, oh, bad luck, mate. Like, bad luck. Now, we can't look at the season in Israel and say, bad luck. Luck did not enter into the picture. It has nothing to do with anything. He says, I'm the one who's doing this. I gave you to plunder. I'm the one who brought warfare because you really brought it upon yourselves. Instead of trouble driving them to God, they chose to go deeper into idolatry. They thought they were being spiritually attacked. They said, we need more gods to bail us out, to help us. We need to find a God who's really effective against this problem. You know, the crops aren't growing. Hey, Baal will help with that. So we'll set up an altar to him. We'll give greater sacrifices. Instead of repenting, putting away all their idols and turning to God. And because they were disobedient, he poured on them the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. He's saying, I claim responsibility for allowing your lands to be burnt. For you to be plundered. I am doing this to you. And he's like, listen to me, please. I'm allowing this to happen. Not because I want your destruction. I want your salvation. The people were burned, but they didn't lay it to heart. They didn't make the connection between the problem in their life and the fact that it was God who was allowing that for the purpose that they would come to him. Now, doesn't this have strong implications for Christians today? Understand the things God has done, he will do. He will do this to people he loves because we know he'll chasten us. He hasn't changed. God allows Christians to suffer for doing good. Jesus, perfect example, he did only good, but he went to a cross. And he also allows us to suffer the consequences for sin, for doing the wrong thing, right? So you can suffer, everyone in the world suffers, period. But God will ordain suffering in your life to accomplish his purpose in the end. Now, there are many who will fancy themselves under spiritual attack because something happens in their life that they perceive as negative or painful, and it is. They might actually be under the gracious hand of God to bring them to their senses to return to him and put away their idols. It's a terrible thought to think that because of my disobedience, God would allow me to be plundered. That because I've chosen to go my own way, that this sort of warfare and strife and uncertainty can come into my life. And even blindness, where I'm not seeing what... I don't even realize that it's God who's doing it to restore me. I think it's the devil trying to destroy me. But it's God trying to restore me. This curse, this blindness, this deafness, it's only lifted by repentance and faith in Christ. If you're in a war right now and you're currently losing that war, wouldn't you want to know why? Would you give your ear to God if he had some insight into that? Better than that, instead of just giving God my ear, am I willing to give him my life? Say, Lord, take it all. I, I give it to you. We just say, Lord, take it. He's like, no, no, you give it. <laughs> He's not going to just take it from you. Lord, take this away. No, no, give it up. Give it to me. I'll take care of it. God, and this is the amazing thing, God has a redemptive plan even when we're blind and we do the wrong thing. Because the blindness of the Jews, their rejection of Christ, his crucifixion on the cross, what did that give rise to? That made a way for salvation to come to the Gentiles so we could be saved. And God will save the nation as well, the nation Israel, when they come to Jesus. So God's able to redeem. It's not like a dry season, a blind season is a waste because God is a redemptive God and he will use it. It doesn't mean that we should justify, well, you know, I can hang around in the slough for a while or or stumble in the mire and just just kind of kick around and feel sorry for myself. No, or or justify sin. Well, God's got, he's got it all in hand and he'll work it out. Be very cavalier about it. That's not where I want to be. I want to be in the will of God knowing he will do it. Now we're going to 
take some time to celebrate communion together. And if you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, 36 through 42, that'd be great. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. So Jesus, he knew his hour had come. They had just eaten the the Passover meal together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, which means the olive press. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time. He went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. So the first time he says, Let this cup pass from me, not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done. And God's will was done, wasn't it? The suffering of Christ was according to the will of the Father because by his death, many would be saved alive. He values you, the people at that time and the people for all eternity who would come. Jesus laid down his will in Gethsemane before he laid down his life on Calvary. He gave his will first and God saw it completed. He cooperated now we are, I, I can identify with the disciples probably a lot better than Jesus at this moment. He says, can't you guys pray for an hour? No. Like, that, that's a long time. But no, can't you watch and pray? And, and it wasn't even an hour probably, but they were tired. They were sleepy. And we can be like that. We can be sleepy and senseless uh, to the voice and the will of God, not realizing what he wants us to do. But we don't have to be. We're not resigned to that, that we have to be the sleepy disciples. No. God has put within us the Holy Spirit who gives life and liberty to all who believe. And let's take this to heart. That we can say, Lord, your will be done. Knowing the Lord will. He will do it. He will accomplish it. And even as Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father, and he was raised from the dead. So we should live in newness of life. This this week, uh, with the, the rain and everything, baseball was called off, so I decided, great time to fix up the yard. I don't know if you guys have done much yard work yet, because the grass hasn't been growing. I haven't. I certainly haven't. And... Uh, so I started edging, and I noticed a few little weeds in the middle. And so I started uh, starting to, to pull them out of the lawn. And then when I was down there, it wasn't until I was down there, but I noticed that, wow, there's actually a lot of weeds. So I'm like crawling around my lawn, pulling out weeds. And, you know, one thing led to another. And pretty soon there was a huge pile over by the side. And I had no... I wouldn't have known because I, I wasn't paying attention to my lawn. It didn't need to be mowed. I had kept the leaves raked. And it's fairly insightful that it's on my knees where I saw things I couldn't see before. And weeds, it's like sin that grows in our hearts. Even during a spring season, you can have that seasonal rain it's a time of new growth. You can go, oh, the flowers and the buds and, and be focusing on all these things that are happening. But right in front of you on the lawn, there's things in our hearts that can start growing. A little bit of unbelief, distraction enters in. And we it's only on our knees that we see what's been going on. 
And so I encourage you guys this morning as we consider the sacrifice of Christ, that he died for sin, that we, he died for us so we could be free from sin. Our hearts can be easily choked with the cares of this life and make the word of God unfruitful. And so let us not just um, come casually before the Lord, but really get on our knees before him. Let him examine our hearts. Humble ourselves. God didn't want to just deliver us from the penalty of sin. He came to deliver us from the power of sin. And just as Jesus rose from the dead and he came out of that tomb, a new man, uh, glorified, so we no longer have to be a slave to sin. We can have that sort of victory. Like whatever sin has got you bound, you can just walk out of that in the, by the grace of God and in newness of life. So the picture of Christ's resurrection is not just a picture of our eternal future someday in the distance, but the freedom and the power we have to walk with God right now. All because of what Jesus has done on the cross. He shed his blood, his body was broken, so that we could be born again and we could walk in newness of life. Let's thank him. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Thank you for the new life that we have available through the sacrifice of Christ when we repent and we believe the gospel. Lord, I, I pray that we would confess our sin before you. We wouldn't be content to just mow, mow the weeds off, but that we would get on our knees before you and see if there be any wicked way in us so that we could repent and be restored to fellowship with you. Lord, we are weary of being blind. We are weary of being plundered. We're weary of the uncertainties that we have given place in our lives. And we confess, Lord, that we are blind and deaf and we need you to speak to us. And we need you to help us not be so senseless like the disciples were in the garden. Lord, wake us up in your loving way. Touch us, Lord so that we could come to our senses and see that you have written this for us, that there's a lesson here today you want us to, to live by and promises to believe. Thank you, Lord, that you will. We can rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.